We're in James chapter 3, and uh, because of, Anthony, we shut the door again? Because of, of where we are as a nation, and I believe it ties in, I wanted to take a, a moment today and address biblically kind of where just some of the things that we've seen in our country, some of the things that are going on. I, 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 and I really, I think about from James 3.10, within the context of James 3, here, here's where I'm thinking. He says, James says, From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And, and as, you, as we all know, the Supreme Court ruled uh, in a 5-4 to four vote that same-sex couples can now marry in all 50 states. And, and that set off a, a myriad of reactions, good reactions, bad reactions, uh, loving reactions, hateful reactions. And as your friend, as your pastor, as a fellow laborer, I want us to be able to look at the world through a biblical lens. I want us to be able to sift what we see in the things of the world through the Bible. I, I want us to be equipped to respond biblically, not in the flesh, not in the ignorance of, of our sinfulness. We, we all, I mean, in, in, you want to you talk about an application of James 3 I mean, this issue will cause a myriad of applications of James 3, how we've stumbled in many, many ways with our tongues. One of my responsibilities as your pastor is to feed you. It's to help you fight the good fight. It's to help us all to be wise in this world, as Ephesians says, be wise, not unwise, not to be foolish, to navigate these waters well. And, and that's what I, I pray that today will be helpful. Uh, I, obviously, you guys know me, I can, I can be the world's worst people pleaser in the sense that I can worry about what people think. And all week, I've read this and read this and tried to be as clear but as truthful as possible. I, I know that our small groups discuss these sermons in their small groups, and, and I, I'm, I'm anxious to see how that discussion goes. I'm anxious to see if we ever have small groups again. I... I, I, I uh, uh, Worked up my resume. That took all of about two minutes this week, just in case today doesn't go well. If you know me well enough, it doesn't take long for me to fix up my resume. There's only about two things on it. So, uh, but no, I, I hope that today will go good. I, I want our just. I want if if I'm honest with you, I want us to. I want us to say the dumb things and get all that stuff out here in the context of the church, so that when we go out in the world, we can be unified. Let's fix our theology here. Let, let's, let's, let's work on it here. So when we go out in the world, we can have a unified biblical approach to what we see. That we will help our mission and not hinder our mission. I, I hope that discussion will be, will be constructive. I hope it will not be divisive. I hope it will be unifying, not divisive. So, some of you in a group of this size, some of you will agree with me. I hope most of you will agree with me. Some will disagree. And that's okay, but listen to me. We can have the discussions, but make sure make sure that you can back up your position biblically. I'm not interested in what people think, what they feel. I'm not, let's talk biblically. Let, let's sift our conversation through the Bible. This is not what this means to me. This is not I know what the Bible says, but that's, that's a conversation killer. 
I know what the Bible says, so do it. So, so if we're going to discuss it, let's talk about it biblically. My, my goal today is not to defend one position or another. It's to force us to think biblically and to force us to have a biblical response to what we see and what we hear around us. When, when you're at the water cooler, when you're at work, when you're in your neighborhoods and people are talking about this, I want us to be able to respond biblically, intelligently, winsomely. I want us, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, to be able to give a defense for the hope that is in us, but I want us to do it with gentleness and respect, as that verse says. It says, do it gently and respectfully. And my goal, as always, is to get us to think biblically, not worldly. To sift what we see in the world through the Bible and, and then respond accordingly. All of this, as I said, all of this falls into the context of James 3 with the tongue. I'm sure many of us in here can think of things that we have said that were spurred on by what's going on in America. Maybe not even this topic, but other topics that just that violated love, that violated truth, that violated, that violated edification, as it talks about in Ephesians 4.29, things that weren't winsome, things that were, quite honestly, judgmental, things that were hypocritical. Maybe they were careless. Maybe they were even unbiblical. I, I, want, us to, I want us to walk out of here, and, and I want to make you think. I want, I want all of us to walk out of here thinking so that when we, when we live in the world we live in, we can have a biblical... Uh, the world may not agree with our response, but we will have a clear, biblical, definitive uh, response to why we act the way we do, why we live the way we do, and why we think the way we do. At least we'll have a clear, biblical reasoning, a reasoned-out faith, if you will, for why we do it. And, and that's what I want to do today. So you see on your notes there uh, some points that I want to make. And I, I tried to make it as simple as possible, like I said. But the first thing, here, here, here we go. And, and how do we respond? That's the question. How do we respond? First thing I want us to see is this. We must be careful that we deal as strongly with our own sin as we do with the sins of others. We, we, we need to first make sure that we are dealing as strongly with our own sin, that we are repulsed and we hate our own sin the same way that we hate the sins of others. The same way that we're repulsed by the sins of others. The, the Bible is very clear. What we're called to in the Bible is foolishness to man. Man in their unsaved, natural state, foolishness to, to them. And we have to be real careful as believers in not expecting the world to live according to biblical standards. The, the world will not live according to the Bible the way that we live according to the Bible. It makes no sense for us to get angry in that sense when they don't, especially when we fall short ourselves. We certainly should want it for them, but without Jesus Christ, my life would be vastly different. I would do things and not do things differently without Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living inside of me. It gives me convictions about things that maybe I didn't have before. The Spirit does that. It doesn't make any sense for us to expect people who do not profess to be followers of Christ to live as Christ commands them to live, to wait until they're married to have sex, to clean up their language, to stop doing all this stuff, to be faithful. That doesn't make sense to an unsaved person. 
to a saved person, that makes all the sense in the world because it's clearly commanded in Scripture and we're living to glorify our King. Someone without Jesus Christ is living to glorify themselves. They're living for themselves. And, and I'm not, I don't want to step on toes here, but, but I think some of this is rooted in us calling ourselves a Christian nation. And, and listen to me, we need to be real careful when we throw that around. We need to be real careful in throwing, when we toss that around. Our, our founding fathers, do, do the research. They were deists, to be sure. A deist is someone who believes that there's a creator, believes there's a God. But being a deist doesn't make you a Christian. Believing in God does not make you a Christian. They, I, I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying do the work. Do the homework. That most conservative historians will agree that Christianity that was embraced by the state, by the country, very different than Christianity that is embraced in the Word of God. Very different. There is a difference. Christianity that was practiced by many of our founding fathers, very different than the Christianity that's commanded in Scripture. I'm not saying all of them, I'm saying many. You can research Thomas Jefferson and his Bible. Thomas Jefferson cut out every instance of his Bible of the miraculous. He called the miraculous, including the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he called it folly. Folly. He cut it out. He said it was unreasonable. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the core foundation cornerstone of our faith you cannot be a christian unless you believe in the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ he basically had reduced it to a to a book of morals and his words that's thomas jefferson i'm not picking on him i'm just telling you the truth we need to be real careful just believing that there's a god doesn't make you a christian Hindus believe there's millions of gods. I have a neighbor who is one. And he'll line, Christian, he'll line Jesus Christ right up next to every other god and think he's okay. The, the reality is that when you follow biblical teachings about life and society and how we live, life seems to go better. And, and to a large extent, that is what we've seen in America. We did things that lined up with the Bible to be sure in some part because they worked well, they led to a better world, not necessarily because it was a glorification of Jesus Christ. That was not the motive. To be sure for some, I'm not throwing them all, I'm just saying we have to be very careful here. And I, I seek to align myself with the, with the Word. I'm passionate about helping others do the same. But that doesn't mean that others will agree with that. Jesus never, ever, ever blamed pagans for living like pagans. He did call them to repent, but he didn't condemn them. The reality is this. Jesus did call out religious people who were acting and living hypocritically. L listen, look, at, look at 1 Corinthians 5. I'll, I'll read it for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the moral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, a covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? 
But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He's saying, no, you know what Paul is saying? He says, deal strongly with the sin inside the church. Deal strongly with our sin. And then as a pure, holy people pursuing it, then you go outside and share the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and you let God deal with them. If, if you believe that homosexual sex is sinful, that is good. But listen to me. Homosexual sex and, is no different of a sin than heterosexual sex outside the bounds of marriage. Okay? No different. It's sin. Homosexual sex is no different than somebody having sex with somebody that's not their wife. Okay? It's no different. And it's no different than any other form of sexual immorality. I could list a whole laundry list of, of forms of sexual immorality that many of us in here are probably guilty of. Do we, do we hate that with the same fervor that we hate the homosexual? Are we as repulsed by our own sin? Are, 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 you know, look, look with me. We, we need to be very careful that, that we don't hold the world to our standards when we, when we don't measure up either. And here's where I'm going with this. Again, again, look at 1 Corinthians 6. Back to 1 Corinthians, we were in 5. Flip over to 6. Look, look at verses 6, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. I'll read them. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen to this list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, here's, here's, the, here's where the rubber meets the road. Every single one of us find ourselves somewhere on that list. Every single one of us have find our, we're guilty of one of those. And, and homosexual sin and the sin of the homosexual is not the only sin mentioned that those who are unrepentant of and guilty of will not inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexual, the act of homosexual, of homosexual sex in that relationship is an offense to God's design just like straight sex is outside the bounds of marriage. It's just as offensive. And we need to be careful treating them differently. There, there, to be sure, you keep on reading in chapter 6, there is, a spe, there is something uniquely tragic and devastating about sexual immorality. You can look down in verse 17. The one who joins him, tell, he says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. There is something unique. But, it, but it's the same for the man who's cheating on his wife as the man who's sleeping with another man. It's sin. I mean, if, if, I'm, if I'm as so bold, if I'm as so bold, let me ask. Just, no, don't raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand when I say this. You're going you're gonna to embarrass yourself. I'm just saying on the front end, sit on your hands. Some of you like to raise your hand real quick. You're not going to do that here. Okay? Trust me. Let me ask, just to, just to put it in your, on your front porch, get, just kick the fence a little bit. Were you a virgin when you got married? If the answer to that was no, guess what you're guilty of? Sexual immorality. Are you as, are, do you hate that? 
as much as you do this? Do you hate your sin? Or, or what about this? Some of us, what about our children? Are they sexually pure? Are they virgins? Are they waiting till they get married to have sex? Are you as, are you as offended? Are you as repulsed over that? as you are with the homosexual who's having sex outside of God's design, because so is your straight child who is sleeping with somebody that's not their wife or fooling around with boys or girls that are not their spouse. And I hear it all the time, boys will be boys, everybody's doing it. No, everybody's not doing it. By God's grace, I didn't do it. By God's grace, my wife didn't do it. We, quote-unquote, turned out normal, debatable. This is what I'm getting at when I say, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be, be a downer here. I'm simply saying, this is what I mean when I say we need to lament over our sin and hate our own sin and deal with our own sin before we're quick to run and, and, and be convicting of the sin of others. We, we need to pursue our own sin with the same fervor that we pursue other people's sin. At least we need to start by being consistent. By, by humbly addressing all forms of sexual immorality with the same intensity. N never, mind, never mind our own greed and gluttony and jealousy and idolatry and our hypocrisy over these issues. We, we need to be aggressively doing an all-out frontal assault on our own sin first. L look with me at Matthew 7, or, or listen to Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite, first, listen, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see the point? He's saying deal with your own sin first. Make sure you're dealing strongly. With, make sure that you're not guilty of the same thing that you're trying to convict somebody else of. Make, make sure you're repentant and mourning and that you weep and lament over your own sin first, over my own sin first, before I try to condemn others for their sin. Listen, my... We have worn out the homosexual while doing nothing about our own sin. And, and the, the proof of that goes on. And I mean, even, even acting like we're not guilty ourselves. Do, we need to be addressing not, not only homosexual, not only sexual morality, but every, all the other kinds of sins that we're, that we're just not doing an all-out frontal assault on. I, I pray that we would be a people who attack our own sin aggressively. Our own sin. And that we live with a love for one another and their sin. That we be quick. Galatians, uh, Matthew 18, clearly we come alongside people and help them in their battle with sin, but we are dealing with our own sin first. We're addressing our own sin first. Look, the church, here's the, here's the thing. The church is full of the sexually immoral. Let's be honest. E repentant. I'm talking about repentant. That's just what we are. 
We, we are in need of Christ, just like the people outside the church who are sexually immoral need Christ. We, we need to admit to the homosexual and pursue them for the gospel's sake by telling them that they're in much in need of mercy as we are. I need God's grace. I need God's mercy. I need God's forgiveness for my own sin just as much as people outside of these walls need it. The solution to my sin is the same solution to their sin. It's Jesus Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of me. That, that's really what I'm trying to get at in asking in individuals. This may be the last after this. People are going to cancel their testimonies. But this is what I'm trying to get at with people sharing their testimonies. Without being offensive, I'm trying to get across the fact that we're a bunch of messed up, sinful, marred by sin, hurt by sin, wounded by sin, people who have been saved by the grace of God and there's anything worth boasting about in our lives, it's that Jesus saves. The good that is in me is Jesus Christ. God, God did not save me. He did not save you because we were better, the best, perfect, good. In His sovereign grace and mercy, He chose to save us and He has made that same salvation available to those outside of these walls. That, that's the point. Christianity, don't act like we are all works in progress. Please don't act like that's not the case. Every single one of us have a sign above us that literally says, under construction. At work here. God is at work here. And we all stumble and need forgiveness. Don't act like that's not the case. None of us as Christians became Christians and stopped sinning altogether, totally, immediately. That we never stumbled with things inside of Christ. That we studied with th stumbled with things outside of Christ. What, what if we gave each other a little bit of grace? What if we came alongside each other in love and said, Hey, I'll walk with you while you struggle. And what if we did that with people outside the church too? What, what if we put our arms around somebody and say, you know what? I'm a sinner in need of mercy and grace just like you are. Let's go to Christ together. Let's chase after Christ together. M Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35 makes it very clear. We cannot be lavish receivers of God's grace and mercy and not be lavish givers of God's grace and mercy. And, and on the flip side, before you take it to places I'm not saying... There, there is another half of this truth that I, that, and what this doesn't mean. And, and people take it to this extreme. They, they, I hear Matthew 7 quoted all the time outside of its context. What this doesn't mean is that we never approach somebody about their sin. We do approach people about their sin. It would be unloving to not approach somebody about their sin. What it does mean is that I'm not approaching you about your sin before I'm not dealing with me and my sin. And it does mean that I'm not coming down hard on you before I first came down hard on Chris. And that I'm not out here having an affair with somebody. Meanwhile, I'm over here conf confronting and, and, and challenging this guy on having an affair or sexual morality all the while I got this thing going on over here, which I don't. I'm just telling you. You see, the, see, the, see what I'm saying? It doesn't mean we never confront sin. It means that we have to deal with sin, but we deal with our own sin first. It means that I have a full onslaught on sin in my life first. And out of brokenness over my own sin and gratitude for God's grace and mercy, I lovingly share that grace and mercy with other people who are in need of that same grace and mercy. That's what we're called to. 
We are sinners who have received grace and mercy, and we are to go tell others about where we have found grace and mercy and an unending source of grace and mercy for all of our sin. So, so first I want to challenge us. Make sure we're dealing with our sin first. Make sure you hate your own sin more than you hate other people's sin. Okay? Secondly is this. The early church never looked to the government for guidance, but rather the Word of God. We, we get our guidance, we get our cues from the Word of God. Us being in a country where we feel like the, the country is turning away from the Word of God, is abandoning the Word of God, doesn't care about the Word of God, guess what? That puts us in some very good company, namely like most of the rest of the world. Namely like the history of Christianity. I mean, Jesus himself and his followers lived in a time where the government was very, very opposed to what he was doing. Jesus never once, scanned the scripture, never once appealed to the government to back him up, to change their standards, to make it easier for a Christian to be a Christian. Matter of fact, we see people begging Jesus to become the government, to which he said it was not the time. Paul himself, he appeared before government officials on many occasions. Not one time did he say, hey, you need to change these laws because they don't line up with the Word of God. He did, however, invite the officials to repent and follow Jesus. Look at Acts 26. In Acts 26, verses 19 through 32, let me read this. So King Agrippa, I did not approve, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also to Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea, and even the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, not, not the government, help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place that the Christ was to suffer and, by, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish and the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in, the defense, in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You are, your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him with confidence also, since I am persuaded that none of these things can escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. He's saying, look, the truth of Christ, of his death, burial, and resurrection, this wasn't done over in a field somewhere where nobody could see. It's obvious. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to be a Christian. How about that? And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. Paul did that while he was in prison. Paul did that while he was a prisoner. That, that's our cry. Paul and Jesus himself constantly were in opposition to the government, constantly found themselves being pursued and hated and persecuted by the government, ultimately they would die under their government's power, yet never once called for anything but repentance. In fact, mo many of Paul's letters that we read in the New Testament were written while he was bound in chains in a prison. 
You know what Paul did while he was in prison? Not argue about him being wrong there. Shared the gospel with the whole Praetorian Guard. And it says in Philippians 1 that, that many, many, many believed and many, many, many more were now more bold to share their faith. Why? Because Paul, under persecution, never wavered. He looked for God, for his help. He knew his mission, not the government. Listen, we don't get our cues from the government. To be sure, hear me, we obey the government. Don't go out there and think you disobey the government. Go to Romans 13, we obey the government. But we obey the government within the boundaries of God's word. You can go to Daniel 3 and see three guys that were thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to someone who was not the Lord. We follow Christ, we get our orders from the word regardless of of what the Supreme Court or anything else says. We're not being rebels, we're being followers of Christ. And, and, and let me illustrate this fact. Let me illustrate how we serve a God that is very good at taking the worst things in the world and turning them into good. Genesis 50 tells us that. The, cru the crucifixion of Jesus Christ tells us that. Listen to this, in 1857, I, I want to illustrate this fact. In 1857, the case of Dred Scott versus Sanford. Listen to what the Supreme Court ruled that African-Americans, whether enslaved or free, could not be American citizens and therefore had no standing to sue in federal court, that the federal government had no power to regulate slavery in the federal territories acquired after creation of the U.S. Basically, the Supreme Court ruled that African-Americans were not citizens. They could be sold and treated however they wanted, as mere property. Supreme Court ruled that. They voted 7-2. to two. That decision, that decision in many ways spurred on what would be known as the Civil War, where African Americans and other slaves were finally freed from slavery. Nine years later, after that Supreme Court decision in 1866, the Civil Rights Act was adopted, and the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution stated that African Americans would receive full citizenship, a complete reversal of what the Supreme Court had once ruled. The decision in 1857, many historians regard that as the worst Supreme Court decision in the history of the United States, and rightly so. And yet, right prevailed. Right prevailed. Might one day we look back on this Supreme Court decision and realize our mistakes as a country? I pray that's the case. I pray that right will prevail here too. But, but let's be honest. None of us are suffering like Paul and Jesus did at the hands of the government. None of us are suffering like our African-American ancestors did at the hands of the government. We can assembly free. We can receive tax breaks. We can give to the church and receive tax breaks. We can live however we want. I pray that, I pray that our response to this decision will be, will be something that drives us to pray more fervently in the early hours will cause us to better treasure our times together, will cause us to rise up and speak more boldly about Jesus Christ, because at the end of the day, hearts and minds turn to Jesus, that's what's going to turn a country. It's when people love the Lord with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength and live for Him. And even if it doesn't turn the country, we can lay our heads down at night knowing we've done what is right. I pray that we'll be more bold to speak about His death, burial, and resurrection, but with grace and mercy and love. God has a habit, again, of taking what is meant for harm and turning it into good, i.e., the resurrection, the crucifixion of Christ, rather. 
Maybe this will drive us to be a better community of believers. Maybe it will drive us to love our spouses more radically and more deeply and, and live out what we say we believe. Maybe it will spark a revolution in a good way. The church has always historically spread more under persecution than comfort. Might we realize that, that life, this life is not a game? We're at war. Christianity is war. It's a fight. Might we live in such a way similar to Paul where even the government takes notice? I don't know. Our government is not infallible. They're not inerrant. They're not unending. They're not omnipotent. They're not immutable. They're not omniscient. But the God of this word is. And this word is. And we'll follow him no matter what. No matter what it costs. No matter what it, no matter what it takes for me. I'm going to follow this word. My, my brothers in, in, in Canada who speak out against topics such as homosexuality, refuse to marry, you know where they end up? In jail. That's, that's, a, that's a road I've got to face. I'm not going to back down to God's word. Maybe that's where we're leading as a country. I don't know. But if it does, I hope you all visit me. Because we're not going to back down. We're going to call sin, sin, not only in our own life, but in other people's lives. And regardless of what the, the government says, I'm going, to, I'm going to live according to the Word of God. And I'm going to base my life on the Word of God. Not as a rebel. I want to obey to the government, but I've got to, I've got a, I've got to have allegiance to my Lord and Savior first and foremost. Thirdly is this. What makes the issue of same-sex marriage different is this ruling institutionalized sin. It institutionalized sin. It, 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 it encouraged it. And, and uh, there you can look at 1 Corinthians 6. You can look at Galatians 5. There are other sins there listed. But, and that, 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 peop, that the Word of God says that people who commit them in an unrepentant fashion will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what we're, but what we're dealing with right now with homosexuality is different. At least right now. And this is what I mean by that. Our Supreme Court legislated, encouraged, institutionalized, they normalized sin. They normalized sin. And listen to me, here's the tragedy. The Bible is not silent. The thing that, may, that, that wounds me probably more than anything, the Bible is not silent with regards to governments that institutionalize or encourage sin or people that give a hearty approval to sin. Listen to me to Romans 1, 24 through 32. That this is speaking to people who, although they knew God, they refused to honor Him as God or give thanks. Therefore, God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. proper being filled with all unrighteousness. Listen to what he lists. 
wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unlovingly, unloving, unmerciful. Listen, and all they know, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the tragedy. Giving hearty approval to sin. Whether it be sexual sin or any other sin. And, and listen, the brokenness surrounding this issue has been around a long time. Nothing new. I hope you see that. The brokenness that sin has brought and causes and the hurt has been around since the fall of man. There is a tremendous difference. Listen to me. There is a tremendous difference between the orientation to sin and the act of sin. But what's new in our country is the celebration of sin. And the culture in general that we live in makes no excuses for their sin. It happens all around them unashamedly. Every single one of these deserve God's judgment apart from repentance and faith in Christ. Sinners receive God's judgment for their sin apart from placing their faith in Christ. But in today's society, the challenge for us is this. No other sin is being so aggressively applauded as homosexuality. Other sins are frowned upon, but that's no longer the case with regards to homosexuality. At least according to the emerging consensus. And, and that makes our position as believers, building on what I just said about the government, that makes our position as believers all the more tenuous and difficult and perilous because we believe, because the Bible says it, that homosexuality along with other sins is wrong and keeps people out of the kingdom of God. Therefore, we cannot be loving and caring and say nothing about it. And we can't act like we agree with it and we can't celebrate it. We must, as believers, call sin, sin. And listen, when we do this, we're not judging sin. God has already judged sin. He has already deemed murder and envy and homosexuality and all these other things as sin. I'm not rendering the judgment. I'm simply telling you what has already been judged. Sin is sin. We're simply relaying the verdict. And this is where it gets difficult, and you see it on your handout. In our opposition... We are wrongly painted as simply being against homosexuality. The reality is this, that we are for God. We're for God. And because I'm for God, I'm against sin. First, my own sin, but also your sin. And because I'm for God, because I love, and because we love the world as God does, we are against any sin that keeps people from experiencing everlasting joy in God through Jesus Christ and the salvation that He's offered. We're against that. I want people to go to heaven. I want people to have their sins forgiven. Therefore, I speak out against sin. I love them. And, and, and homosexuality gets all the press because that's where we are as a nation. The, the reality is this. If thievery was, if the Supreme Court said, hey, it's okay to take anybody's property regardless of your own, would you be okay with that? No, you'd speak out against it. You wouldn't go on being a thief. 
if, hey, robbery, it's okay to, you know, we were wrong, this morality stuff's a joke, just, just be, all of you be robbers, it doesn't matter. You'd speak out against it. And, and we would stand up as a church and say, no, the Word of God says don't do that. You see what I'm saying? We're for God. We're for His Word. The issue where the church and the world diverge is, is at the, the crossroad of homosexuality. And the church sees it as being against sin. And sin is the issue at stake here. And, and, we have to, and that's where it goes back even to the first point. We've got to make sure that we're not just against other sin, we're also against our own sin. And that's where we've got to be consistent. And that's where we, we've got to be careful what we communicate. The, the world wants to divide us, and don't fall prey to this, the world wants to divide us into simply two camps. You either 100% support it, or you 100% hate it. And if you hate it, then you hate the individual. That's what the world wants us to do. The world, the world wants to put you into two camps. As believers, listen to me, we don't walk those paths. As believers, God has given us something very, very unique to say, and here it is. As believers, you see it on your handout. As believers, we don't celebrate the practice of homosexuality. We acknowledge God's clear, revealed word that declares it to be sin. And at the same time, we don't hate those who practice sin, but rather are called to love them and call them out of their sin. Here's the message that we take with us. And it's the same message that the gospel tells you, and the same message that the gospel tells me. We say that the gospel says this, the sinner is wrong, but it also says the sinner is loved. And that's a far cry from the message that many of us are saying. The sinner is wrong. The gospel stands in my face and says sin is wrong, but it also says you're loved. And if I'm going to receive that, I've got to be willing to give that. Those are the same words, the sweetest and most glorious words that were ever... It'd be like going... Some of you have faced this. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, You have cancer. Terrible. But there's a cure. See, that's what we're saying to sin. You're a sinner, but there's a cure. You're, you're a sinner, but you're loved. That, that's what the cross screams. That's the gospel. God tells us that we're wrong, that the wages of sin is death, that unrepentant rebellion brings judgment and hell, and that our rescue required the death and of, of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And then, so that's you're a sinner. The flip side is this, Then God tells us we're loved, that Romans 5.8, Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would, would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You're a sinner, but you're loved. That's the gospel. You can look at Romans 5.8. You can look at 1 Peter 3.18. You can look at Ephesians 2.1-7 through 7, that though we were dead in our trespasses, He gave us tremendous mercy and grace. You're wrong, but you're loved. That's our message. We, we too were wrong in our own sin, and yet we too were loved. And the gospel has a tremendous opportunity to shine in this environment. But if we can give a defense. Timothy Keller said this, and, and I think we need to take it to, we need to remember this. We're far worse than we ever imagined. 
and yet we're far more loved than we can ever dream. You and I are far worse sinners than we ever imagined. And yet you can go to Ephesians 3 and Paul reminds us that we're far greater. The love of God is far greater than you ever dreamed. That's why you see in Ephesians 3, Paul prays that the Ephesians would understand what is the height and the depth and the breadth of, of what? God's love. That you'd understand that, that, that he's able to do far more exceedingly beyond anything we ask or think. You know, that, that's worth sharing. That's worth responding with. That's our message in this debate. You're, you're, when we are hated, when we are mocked, when we are marginalized by the media, the gospel shines bright. You're, you're, you're wrong, but you're loved. Understanding that we're, we're, we're for God. That puts us against sin, no matter whose sin it is, no matter what sin it is. Fourthly, and I'll close here, fourthly, the church has always been counterculture. The church has always been counterculture. Look, look, look at me in 1 Corinthians. Or just listen, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, Paul writes this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's what he's saying there. To the world, a dying Savior is foolishness and weakness. And Paul says to those who believe, a dying Savior means everything. It means that I don't have to pay the penalty of my sin. Jesus Christ paid the penalty of my sin. It means I don't have to face the wrath of God because Jesus Christ faced the, wrath of, faced the wrath of God for me. That I don't have to earn my own righteousness that all these other religions teach. Jesus Christ was my righteousness for me. Foolishness to the world. You can go on to read in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul goes on in chapter 2. He says, we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, wisdom, however, not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. He goes on to write in verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Listen, those, for those who have forsaken God's path of sexual fulfillment and walked into homosexuality or, or, or sexual morality outside the bounds of marriage, even between two heterosexuals, Jesus offers astonishing mercy. Mercy. 
Mercy has been offered. L- listen to me in 1 Corinthians 6.11. I read earlier verses 9 and 10 of all the sins that were there. L- listen, to what, listen to Paul what Paul says. In response to that great sin, look at what he says. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Those are the sins that God called us out of. And the tragedy is what we see today stiff arms that grace and mercy. In in what is an attempt to bring fulfillment and happiness, sinners, unsaved sinners are ignorant of the trouble and the hurt and the wounds that they are bringing, not only upon themselves, but they're bringing upon us as a nation. In an attempt for fulfillment and happiness and all these things. And our calling as a church is to mourn over the damage that, is, that, that this is doing and bringing upon not only the people of our nation, but our nation. We, more than anything else, as saved, redeemed sinners, can see the hurt that is going to come down the pipeline with this decision. We know firsthand because of the Bible, sin brings death and sin brings misery. Satan offers all the benefits on the front end, and then on the back end you pay the price. With the wounds and the scars and the hurts. Colossians 3 speaks to this. In Colossians 3, verses 5 through 6. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is better of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons... For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And having put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge of the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. God has called us out. We know the hurt that is coming. We know, we know it not only because the Bible tells us, we know it because our lives experienced it. That, that's part of what you're seeing in these, in these testimonies. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings hurt. Sin brings, ultimately, unrepentant sin brings death, separation from Jesus Christ. It doesn't offer what it promises. And we know Galatians 6, 7 says, you reap what you sow. That's what we're, in our message, we're trying to tell people that. We've seen how this thing ends. You're going to pay a price far deeper than you ever imagined for your sin. And, 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 and that's the difference. We mourn over sin. Christians mourn over sin. We hate to see what people are doing to not only their lives, but other lives. We don't celebrate sin. We mourn over sin. And we cry out that Jesus would deliver us from the wrath that is to come. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.10. What we need to do as a people is to use this to, to take the gospel forward and stand, stand firm even in disapproval, but like never before. Don't cave in. Continue to call sin, sin, but say where there is sin, Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, what? Grace much more abounded. You are, you are wrong, but you are loved. 
And, and, and know that there will be persecution that comes with that. John 15, Jesus is very clear to his disciples. They hated me. Guess what they're going to do to you? They're going to hate you. They crucified me. Guess what they're going to try to do? They're going to crucify you. 2 Timothy 3.12, For those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecuted. Don't back down. But do it with gentleness and respectfulness and love. Know this. Again, as I said, persecution has advanced historically the gospel in far greater ways than ease ever could. I pray that we as a church would be, would be moved to a boldness in our love. That, that we'd be moved with, with radical grace and truth that is found in Jesus Christ alone and herald that truth unashamedly. Per, perhaps we, ten years later, might look back and see what God was doing, waking up a nation, waking up Christians, even in the midst of this, perhaps. Maybe God is allowing, like He did in Paul's life in Philippians 1, the gospel to go forward to places never, that it had never been before. And as I close, listen to me, none of this is easy. Processing this, thinking through this, I spent much time trying to think through it and really drill this down to just some basic things that we can get our arms around and do as a people of God. Every single one of us in this sanctuary falls short in many ways. And we will continue to do so. We're not okay with our shortcomings. We just realize that that's a part of the Christian walk. We, we fall short sometimes. All of us have fallen short in regards to defending the gospel with gentleness and respectfulness. All of us have spoken truth apart from love. Here, here's what I would say to you. Repent. Go to people that maybe you've offended. Go to people where maybe you've fallen short and ask their forgiveness. And, and try to, by God's grace, establish a new dialogue with them. Judgment rarely is a good evangelistic tactic. Ju judgment rarely is. But relationships prove to be very fruitful. Love them. Not, not, not being okay with their sin. Not backing down from your convictions. But doing to us exactly what God has done in spite of our sin. He loved us. Because that'll preach, and that's the gospel. I pray that we'd be a people that are willing to make friends with sinners solely for the gospel's sake. Solely for the gospel's sake. Not being unequally yoked, as 2 Corinthians 6 talked about, but friends for the gospel's sake. And I hope, I hope that today helps. I hope that it stirs you to ask some questions of yourself. I hope that it will prompt healthy discussion amongst ourselves. I pray that the grace and the mercy that we have received through Jesus Christ and the gospel, those of us in here who are believers, I pray that that would permeate every area of our life. That we would be lavish givers of grace and mercy because we have been lavish receivers of grace and mercy. Not, not being okay with sin, whether it's our own or someone else's, but knowing that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And, and I, I, I pray that that would be the message. I pray that we'd be a people that pursues our own sin first and foremost and then pursues the sin of others. And I pray that everything that we do and say would bring glory to our great Lord and Savior.